Well, we're back after a short break. Last week, we're back this morning in the book of James. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to James chapter 2. You can also find the text uh, printed in your bulletin. I haven't really gotten into it yet, uh, but I saw that the the season premiere for the for the new season of The Walking Dead was was last Sunday night, I believe, or sometime within the last week. And I'm still back on season one, so don't come try to talk to me about it um, later. But the, but the general plot line is zombie apocalypse. Okay, that's that's all you need to know. That's 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 what happens. Uh, and in the very first episode, the main character is captured by people. Who think that he's been infected with the with the zombie virus or, or whatever it is that makes them turn into members of the Walking Dead, and they think that he's already one of these beings that he's already on his way to being a zombie. Uh, in in the latter stages of the disease, it's very obvious if you've seen the show or the previews. It's very obvious uh, once you're a zombie, but in the early stages, it's not so easy to tell. You could be walking around looking like a normal human being, maybe still acting like a normal human being, when really you've been infected with this virus and you are already on your way to being a member of the walking dead. Insert evil Halloween laugh. Uh, now, now, what's that have to do with James? Uh, nothing. No. What's that have to do with James? Well, we're in this section of James uh, where James is warning his readers, and what he's going to do today is he's warning his readers that it's very possible to have an orthodox, uh, what looks to be an orthodox healthy faith in God, to be a church-going person, to think you're spiritually healthy when the reality is that you're a member of the walking dead, when the reality is that your faith is not really a living faith, it's a dead faith. So, uh, a very light and cheerful text this morning, but uh, it's where we are, James chapter 2, and we're going to begin at verse 14, and this is God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Uh, let me pray for us. <coughs> Father, um, 
This is a difficult passage of scripture, but it is your scripture. And you've given it to us uh, for our good. And so I pray that you would help us as we think about it this morning. Uh, give us understanding. Uh, uh, help us to, to apply it to our lives and help us to be changed by it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've heard it said before, I probably said this before, that for every uh, one look you take, kind of an introspection at yourself, you ought to take ten looks at Jesus. Uh, well, this is the, the one look at yourself today. Um, so this is, this is a little bit of, of, of looking at the condition of your own heart. And, and I want to just kind of jump in here with the hard verse that kind of jumps out at everybody right from, from the beginning and talk about that uh, before we kind of get into the, some, some practical application. Look at verse 24. Uh, verse 24 says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, <clears throat> y'all remember Galatians, right? This doesn't sound very much like Galatians. It doesn't sound very much like Paul's writing in, in Romans either. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul, you're justified by faith apart from works alone. Of the law. In fact, Paul goes on to say in Romans 4 if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about before God because he's contributed something to his salvation, but he doesn't have anything to boast about because he wasn't justified by his works, he was justified by faith. So, which is it then? This is God's word, and it's all God's word. Is justification by faith or is justification by works? By what you do. Well, to answer that question, uh, I got to talk about words a minute. We got to have a kind of English lesson on Sunday morning. And I want you to, to think about the fact uh, that the same word can take on different meanings and different shades of meaning in different contexts. And let me give you some examples. Uh, I remember being at my grandmother's house growing up and I was eating supper and I was watching a basketball game. And one of the players made a really difficult shot, and I yelled, sweet. Now, do you know what my grandmother said? She didn't say, did he make a hard shot? She said, is something wrong with your dinner? Because when I said sweet, she wasn't thinking about how that applied to basketball. She was thinking about how we think of that in terms of food. Or think about the word sick. Uh, if I said, Will made a sick play on Saturday in his football game. Or if I said, Will's not here today because he's sick. Uh, in the first case, what sick means is he made this amazingly difficult, really good play. In the second case, what it means is, well, he doesn't feel very well. He's not healthy. Uh, take the word please. Um, in, in Susan's family growing up, please was the polite way to ask somebody to pass the salt. Would you please pass the salt? In my family, uh, you would say, would you pass the salt? And if they didn't pass the salt, you would say, would you please pass the salt? And so please for us was more of this sign of, of impatience. I asked you nicely already, now would you please pass it? And so to Susan, it conveyed politeness. Uh, to me, it conveyed unnecessary formality and impatience. And maybe I'm just trying to justify <laughs> my lack of using the word please. But, uh, which gets us... <laughs> 
which gets us to our word, uh, justify. Justify can have a, a judicial sense. Uh, you're justified in the sense of having right standing uh, in a court of law. Uh, you're, you're, you're declared to be in right standing with that court. And that's the way Paul uses the word. Uh, you're justified when you're declared to be in right standing in God's courtroom, not because you've done what the law required, but because Jesus has done what the law required, and that's been credited to your account. It's been credited to you. So you're justified. You're declared righteous because you have faith. Uh, you believe in what Jesus has done for you, and then what Jesus has done for you is, is credited to you, and so you're counted <coughs> righteous. You're justified. But the word justify can also mean to vindicate. To vindicate or, or to demonstrate the truth of something. Uh, Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, what, is, what, is, what does Jesus mean when he says that? Well, this is the way the NIV translates it. Wisdom is proved right by her actions. The, the wisdom of choosing a particular course of action is demonstrated by the results of that choice. Well, let me give you an example. Uh, if, if Keith and I were, were talking about what songs we were going to use one week for worship, and Keith said, I think we should use song A, and I said, no, we should use song B, and we kind of talked about this, and Keith said, well, song B is going to be really hard for me to play and really hard for everybody to sing, and I said, no, we need to do that anyway, and he said, okay. And we came here on Sunday morning, and we tried to sing it, and we just messed it up royally. And nobody sang, and the, and the musicians messed up. Then you would say that Keith was justified in saying that the song he wanted to sing was the right one to sing, and the one that I wanted to sing was going to be a mess. All right? he, he was justified. He was shown to be right. He was vindicated. And that's the way James is using the word here. He's saying... The reality of our faith is justified. The reality of our faith is vindicated by our actions, by what we do. Well, how do you know that? Well, how do you know uh, the way in which the word please or sweet or sick is being used? You know it from the context. How would you know if a person who used the word awful meant full of awe, which is the way the word was traditionally used, or if it meant terrible, which is the way most of us, terrible, which is the way most of us uh, use the word today. How would you know which one? You know from the, from the context of the uses of the word. So what's Paul's context and what's James' context that he's speaking into? Paul is dealing with people who said, who, who were saying, that you needed to add your religious works to faith in Jesus in order to be justified, in order to have right standing with God. You needed to add your works to, to Jesus' work. And Paul's saying very strongly, no, that's not how it works. You get right standing with God through faith in Jesus plus nothing. James, on the other hand, is dealing with people who were professing to have faith in Christ but that faith wasn't bringing about any real change in their lives. It hadn't, hadn't made any change in them. And they were saying, oh, well, that's okay. I, I believe. 
I have faith. I prayed the prayer. I decided for Jesus, you know, 20 years ago. So it's okay. It doesn't matter what I do. And James is saying, now look, if that's real faith, it's going to change you. It's going to lead to good works in your life or it's not saving faith. And he uses very provocative language to make this point. In fact, some say that he may have intentionally used the word justify here to provoke a reaction from us. Because you, you hear him say it and you, you know, you're kind of half asleep and then you go, wait, what? What did you just say, James? What, what point? And so it gets your attention. And he says, look, you can have all the faith you want. You can claim to have as much faith as, as a, you know, a, a million degrees of faith. But if it isn't producing fruit in your life, it's not true faith. James understood that salvation was by grace through faith. Uh, you can see that in places like earlier in chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? All right, Heirs of the kingdom, they were chosen. It's not something they worked for. It's something that they were given. And then right in our text, <clears throat> look down in verses 22 and 23 again. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and he was justified. James alludes to this point in time when Abraham was justified by faith. He, uses, he even points us to the exact uh, verse in Genesis that Paul does in making his case. But he then he points us forward to an event after that that proved the reality of Abraham's faith. A couple of weeks ago, I was over, we were doing guys night uh, over at George's house, and I get a phone call we're watching the game, having a good time. I get a phone call from Susan, and she says, there's a copperhead on the carport. I want you to come home and take care of the snake. And I said, well, you know, I'm over at the guys watching football. I don't really, poisonous snakes was on my menu for that night. And I said, well, it'll crawl off. Just leave it alone. It'll be gone in the morning. And she said, I want you to come home and kill it right now. Now, I've been married since 1995. I can show you the marriage license that proves that we're married. But if I hadn't gone home and killed that snake, um, I would not be here today. I, I, I would have been in a lot of trouble. And you all might have questioned the realities of my love for my wife, the reality of my marriage vows, because my actions weren't matching up with what I profess. Or think about it this way. Think about a couple who gets married and then they immediately get into separate cars and they go to different cities and they never consummate the marriage. They never see each other again. Well, I guess they're married, but are they really married? Is there real, any fruit from, from their profession? Uh, faith that's nothing but empty words, at the end of the day, James says, is not real faith. There's faith, and then there's faith. 
faith. There's actual living faith. So, uh, James and Paul aren't contradicting each other here, but they are addressing very different situations, and they feel the need to emphasize very different things because of the situations that they're dealing with. So, how does that help us then? Uh, what, uh, what does that help us to do as we're looking at this passage? Well, it helps us to examine our faith uh, and, and to ask ourselves, all right, is this faith that I have, that I profess, is it a living faith? Is it a, is it a true faith or a false faith? Is it, is it a living faith or a dead faith? Well, what does it show us? Here's how it works. It shows us two things about false faith and then two things about True faith. What does it show us about false faith or dead faith? Uh, number one, uh, false faith, I can't say those two words together. False faith uh, doesn't produce love for God or love for your neighbor. All right, let's look first at how it affects your relationship with your neighbor. Look in verse 14 again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. False faith sees a neighbor in very difficult circumstances and doesn't do anything about it. You might say, I hope everything works out for you as you keep walking. Or, I'll, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you as you keep walking. That doesn't do that person any good. In the same way, James is saying, a faith like that isn't doing you any good uh, in, in terms of your standing before God. That's not true faith. That's not saving faith. And we talked about this a lot two weeks ago, so I don't want to belabor this point. And, and dealing with, with poverty certainly takes wisdom and it takes discernment. In fact, there's a good book out called When Helping Hurts that talks about some of the ways we try to deal with poverty that actually makes people's situation worse. And so there's wisdom uh, involved in this. But, but look, if, if you're a Christian, then there's got to be some measure of compassion uh, demonstrated in your life toward those who have not, or there's, you've got a question whether you really have saving faith in Jesus. Because if you're a Christian, then what that means is what you're professing is, is that Jesus saved me not when I was a hard worker, uh, not when I had my ducks in a row, not when I, because I paid all my taxes, not because I was a generally good guy, but Jesus saved me in spite of the brokenness and, and darkness and poverty of my own heart. He, he saved you when you were spiritually homeless, when you were spiritually uh, unwashed, when you were spiritually without clothes. And he gave you a home, and he gave you a bath, and he gave you clothes. And when you get that, when that gospel dynamic begins to take hold in your heart, when you understand who you were spiritually and what Jesus did for you, then when you see other people who are spiritually or physically broken, you're going to have compassion for them. When you see people who are spiritually and physically homeless homeless and unwashed and in need of clothing, 
You can think of what Jesus did for you when you were homeless and unwashed and in need of clothing. And there's a compassion there for those people. If you've experienced God's mercy, then you'll be merciful to others. If you're not merciful to other people, then James is saying that's an evidence that your faith is not a real faith. It's a, it's a dead faith. Yeah, I, heard a, I heard a story recently uh, about a, a guy who grew up in a Christian home, and I think his dad may have even been a minister. But while the church would spend money on overseas missions projects, when they had somebody from the wrong side of the tracks show up one day asking for money for shoes, they turned them away and said, we, we can't help you here. Uh, that man, as a child who saw that, is, is not in church to this day. And that would be one of the reasons he tells you he's not in church to this day. See, when, when we fail to, to demonstrate the gospel and deeds of compassion, then, then the world around looks at us and says, y'all are just there. That's just a big social thing you got going on. It's just a club. You're just there to feel better about yourself and, and, and look down on other people. And, and James says, well, what it is, is it's an indication that your faith isn't real. And Jesus would say the same thing in Matthew 25, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. He says, that's an indication. Your lack of compassion for the least of these is an indication that you don't have a living faith. False faith does not produce love for your neighbors. False faith also doesn't produce love for God. Look in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And then look in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. James is saying, look, you say you have faith. I'll believe your faith is, is more than just words. You, you say you believe in God. I'll believe that when I see actions flowing from that. Because, look, demons can have faith. Uh, in, in fact, uh, demons believe that God is one. Demons have orthodox theology. They probably know more about, they, they probably understand who God is better than you do. They have a right grasp of theology. And they rightly shudder. They quake in their boots when they think about who God is. But they don't have saving faith. They don't know God. They don't love God. They don't desire God's friendship. They may have right theology. They may look orthodox in their head knowledge. But they don't serve him. They don't know him. They don't love him. And, and I'll be honest here. If you're a decent church-going Spartanburgian, this is kind of a text that ought to rattle around. It ought to rattle your cage a little bit uh, to think about this. Because James says, you can have your theology right and not know God. I'm going to put it like this. You can believe in justification by faith but not be justified. You understand it, 
but you're not really trusting in Jesus Christ. You can say all the right things about the cross. You can have this great systematic theology and memorize your catechism and all this stuff and be very far from actually knowing God. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said, you can be afraid of the consequences of your sin. And as a result of that, you become very religious and you start trying to do all the right things. But he says at the end of the day, it's nothing but shuddering. Like the demons shudder. It's nothing but your fear working itself out into kind of this hell insurance policy. And Edward says, that kind of action is nothing but your way of shuddering. Demons understand the Bible. Uh, demons uh, have a, uh, are, they're frightened of God, but they have no desire to know God. They have no desire for relationship with God. How many people sitting in pews this morning um, want things from God? They may even have decent theology. They're fearful of the consequences of their sin. They want things from God, but they don't really want God. They don't really want to know God. They want blessing from God. God, maybe if I show up enough, you're going to make my life turn out all right. They want blessing from God. They don't want the friendship of God. They don't want a relationship with God. Their life, at the end of the day, isn't really built on knowing God. It's built somewhere else. It's not on knowing God. False faith um, can look theologically orthodox, but it doesn't produce a love for your neighbor, and it doesn't produce a real love for God. What's true faith look like then? True faith produces a love for God that leads to difficult obedience or obedience in difficult situations. And true faith produces a love for our neighbor that causes us to risk getting involved with them and serving them. Now, let's look at the first one. True faith produces a love for God that leads to, to obedience in difficult situations. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Now, what's this about offering Isaac on the altar? Um, if you go back to the book of Genesis, if you read through the book of Genesis, uh, you'll see that God makes himself known to Abraham. He calls Abraham to himself, and he says, Abraham, I want you to follow me. I want you to go to the land that I'm telling you about. And I'm going to give you a son, and that son is going to one day be a great nation. And through that son and through that nation, ultimately the world is going to be blessed. The entire world is going to be blessed as a result of this promise I'm making to you to give you a son. Now, Abraham... 75 and his wife was 65 when this promise was made that's your normal childbearing age 10 years later God tells Abraham Abraham I'm your shield and your very great reward and Abraham says what about that son that we talked about it's I'm not getting any younger here what about that son and God tells him all right Come out of the tent and go look up in the sky. And you can imagine how dark it would be. And he says, 
count the stars in the sky, and that's how many offspring you're going to have. And the text says, and this is the text that both James and Paul allude to, Abraham at that point believed God when he told him this, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified because he believed the promises of God. Now, 15 years later, Abraham's 100. Isaac's born. Uh, then one day, a few short years later, here's the son of the promise. God tells Abraham, I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice your son as an offering to me. I want you to kill your son as an offering to me. Now, one of the things you've got to understand to understand that, because I know this is very strange to us, one of the things you have to understand to understand God's telling Abraham to do this is that in the Old Testament, one of the things that's re repeated over and over is that the life of the firstborn is forfeit to God uh, because of the sins of the family and because of the sins of the nation. It's an offering before God. It's a payment for sin. However, that life of the firstborn could be redeemed by sacrifices. It could be redeemed by a ransom payment, uh, so to speak. God, God doesn't call in the debt. Right? And, and never in the Old Testament do you read where anybody actually does have to sacrifice their firstborn child. Uh, other than you see in, in the Passover where God takes the lives of the firstborn in Egypt. But God doesn't call in this debt, so to speak, because sacrifices are made in the place of offering up the firstborn child. But this time he did. This time he calls in the debt. And while this would have pained Abraham, it made sense to him. But think about, even though it might make sense to him how hard this would be, wait, God, you promised to make a great nation out of this son. This is my son. This is my firstborn son. And you want me to give him up. And yet Abraham does that. And he prepares to, to sacrifice his son. How is he able to do that? Well, if you go back and read the text in Genesis 22 that, that, that tells the story, Abraham and his son and his servants are on his way for him to sacrifice Isaac. And, and as they're going, he stops and he tells his servants, guys wait right here Isaac and I are going to keep going and we're going to offer a sacrifice and then he says when we're done we're going to come back to you he doesn't say I'm going to come back he says when we're done we're going to come back to you and the book of Hebrews uh, commenting on this that Abraham believed that God if he had to do it was able to raise Isaac from the dead Abraham doesn't understand what's going on but he knows he needs to do what God has called him to do. He has this much faith. God's called me to do this. It doesn't make sense in the light of God's promises, but I'm going to trust in the promises of God that he's going to make a great nation through Isaac. And so as you read the story, he goes and the angel of God intervenes. Abraham doesn't have to sacrifice Isaac. He, he sacrifices a ram instead. And the angel of the Lord stops him by saying, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham's obedience in this demonstrated that while he loved his son, he loved God more. While he treasured his son, he treasured God 
more. Abraham's obedience demonstrated that the faith that he professed in God was actually real. His work vindicates God crediting him with righteousness when he believed. Now, don't misunderstand all this. Abraham wasn't perfect. All right? You go back and, and you read the Old Testament, and he's far from per perfect. His standing with God came through faith, not by works. But his obedience in this incredibly difficult situation proved that his faith was real. How does that apply to us? All right? How, how does something like that apply to us? Well, well think about it like this. We all have things that we treasure more than God. We all have things that we rely on, that we look to for comfort and security. And over the course of our lives, if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then God's going to start to reveal those things to you. He's going to reveal your Isaacs to you, your treasures to you. And he's going to call you to give these things up. He's going to say to you, you've you got to quit building your life on money and build it on me. You've got to quit building your life on being successful and build it on me. And we don't always follow that perfectly, do we? But if true faith is present, if true faith is present, there's going to be this growing desire to give up our idols, to, to lay them down on the altar, and to follow after God. You know, our, our growth, I think sometimes as believers, it's kind of like an old car that you're trying to get running, and it's just sputtering, and it starts, and it stops, and you get it a little ways down the street, and then it stops, and it rolls backwards, and you pop the clutch, and it's just, it's just kind of halting, but it's, it's going forward. There's fits and stops, but if true faith is there, that progress in the faith continues. We keep pressing forward. Uh, letting go of those things that we treasure more than we treasure God. Learning to build our lives on him instead of anything else. If you've got that kind of faith, if you know Jesus Christ, he's going to lead you in uh, to difficult places where you have to obey him. And we'll begin to do that. Giving away our money in obedience to him giving away our time in obedience to him, resting in obedience to him, uh, doing the right thing in that sticky ethical situation at work in obedience to him. True faith is going to produce a love for God that's going to begin to lead to obedience in difficult situations in your life. And then finally, true faith produces a love for your neighbor that's going to cause you risk to take risk at times getting involved in their lives in order to serve them. Look at verse 25 and 26. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, how's Rahab get in the Bible? Well, uh, Rahab in the Old Testament was a Canaanite, which is, they were the bad guys. She's a foreigner, and she's a prostitute. And here's how she comes into Israel's story. 
Uh, Egypt, uh, Israel leaves slavery in Egypt. They spend 40 years wandering in the desert, but God has promised to give them the land of Canaan. And they're getting ready to go in and to take the land of Canaan. And Joshua, who's leading Israel, sends a couple of spies into the first big city they're going to have to go into, which is Jericho. And so he sends these two spies into Jericho, and they find lodging for the night at Rahab's house, which is on the outer wall of the city. Well, the king of Jericho gets wind of this, and he sends people to investigate and to capture the two spies. And Rahab hides the guys on the roof, and then when, they come to the, when the king's men come to the front door, she says, yeah, there were some guys here, but I didn't really know who they were, and they went that away. And so the kings leaves, he leaves them alone. The, um, the Israelites get up and thank her, and they go back to their land. But this is what she says. Listen to her reasoning for why she did what she did. This is from Joshua 2. She comes up to the men and she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Your God is God. And I'm a foreigner and I'm not an Israelite, but I see who he is. And so I'm going to serve him by hiding and helping you. And so she risked her life to save the life of two of God's people. True faith produces a love for other people that will involve you uh, in sacrificial service, that will put you at times in what feel like risky situations. Because, look, loving other people is not easy. Loving other people, even the people in your own family, is not easy. Loving other people doesn't always make sense to us. Loving other people means me giving up on my life. It's my life. I can do what I want to with it. Loving other people involves me giving up on my life. Now think about it. Was it easy for Jesus to love you? Did it make sense for Jesus to give up the treasures of heaven for you? Where would you be now if Jesus had held on to his life instead of giving up his life for you? So we all want to hold on to, to my life. This is my life. But if we have faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus is going to call you to let go of your life. And by his grace, we will begin to do that if we truly have faith in him. Well, this is a hard chapter. Um, and it give you something to, to, to go home and, and pray about and stew over, maybe. But let me, let me sum it up this way. Somebody said that faith is like a factory. Faith is like a factory. Because it's always producing something in your life. Uh, everybody in here, whether, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you have faith. You've, 
put your ultimate hope and trust in something. And wherever you put your ultimate hope and trust, that's producing something in your life. You've built your life on something, and whatever that is shapes you. It shapes your personality. It shapes the things you like to do. Uh, It shapes the way you spend your money. It shapes the kind of work you want to do. It shapes what you want to get out of your life. That's all influenced. That's all based on what you have put your faith in. Your faith is going to produce something. And James says, faith in Jesus, true faith in Jesus, produces a love for God and a love for your neighbor that's going to result in obedience in difficult situations and a willingness to get involved in messy situations and actually serve someone other than yourself. That you will actually begin to serve and to love your neighbors. That's the fruit of faith. That's the fruit of faith. And so the the question for you to, to ask yourself in all seriousness is what kind of fruit is my faith producing in my life? Do I really have faith in Jesus Christ? Let me pray for us. Father, this is a um, this is a sobering text, and uh, we don't really like sobering texts. Uh, these are these are convicting words, uh, but I I do pray that you would give us the grace to take an honest look at ourselves take an honest look at the fruit in our life, take an honest look at our faith. Would you help us to see where it really is? And would you direct it toward Jesus? We pray it in his name.